0: to another episode of the rage podcast my name is cars fox and i am your host for this season Today's episode marks the start of the second theme of season five, which is educational equity. Our last theme was on racial justice, policing, mass incarceration, and gun violence in the U.S. All episodes from this theme are available to you across all of our platforms. And in case you missed our official iRise Institutional Justice event, the link to the recording from this panel with our speakers, Jim Freeman, author of Rich Thanks to Racism, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence's Shayna Harrison, Frank Tia, Andrea Gonzalez, and Julian Rubinstein, author of The Holly, is available in the description box of this episode. I am joined today by guest Dr. Maria Salazar. Dr. Maria Del Delconman Salazar is a professor of curriculum and instruction and teacher education in the Morgridge College of Education at the University of Denver. Dr. Salazar has authored 38 publications and given 155 scholarly local, national, and international presentations on a humanizing pedagogy, equitable teaching and culturally responsive teacher evaluation, and college access and success for Latinx youth. She's the author of Teacher Evaluation as Culture, a Framework for equitable and excellent teaching. This book is published by Routledge Press with series editor, Professor Amarita Sonia Nieto. She published a seminal article reframing Paulo Friera's conceptualization of humanizing pedagogy. She is the lead author on a research study detailing community views on quality and equity in education. Dr. Salazar is a lead author on a briefing to the US Congress related to the state of the Latinx community in the US. In 2018, she was a recipient of the American Educational Research Association Association, Innovations, and Research on Equity and Social Justice and Teacher Education Award. She serves as an educational consultant for organizations such as the Gates Foundation, Branch Alliance for Educators Diversity, Youth Celebrate Diversity, and the Association of Colorado Independent Schools. She is proud of her accomplishments as a DPS alumna, first-generation college student, mom of three wonderful children, and a Mexican immigrant. I want to start today's episode with a clip from our racial, educational, and healing justice event with Dr. Maria Salazar and Denver Public Schools Superintendent, Dr. Alex Morero. Uh, in the clips you're about to hear, Dr. Salazar introduces the roots of her passion as an educator and really sets the space for our conversation today on educational equity. And I found this segment of the event um, very impactful, and I just wanted to share it with you all to set the space and to dive into our conversation today. So I hope you enjoy it, and we'll dive right into the episode.
1: Um, I was born in Mexico in San de Sanchez, Roman, Zacatecas. My parents have a third and a sixth grade education, and they came to the U.S., to Denver, actually, and, and they crossed me across the border when I was only two weeks old. And so I grew up in the Denver area on the north side, what um, whiteification is now calling the lower highlands. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know where that was when somebody told me to meet them in low high, and it was three blocks from the home I grew up in. Uh, my parents are still there. I am a product of the Denver Public Schools. I went to Bright webster Gus Skinner, and I graduated from North High School. And what I often tell people is I succeeded despite my education. And that's one of the stories that I want to tell today about that experience. Um, my early years were very tumultuous, very complicated. Um, my little brother drowned in a well. We were playing hide-and-go-seek in Mexico. And um, he, we think apparently he tried to hide inside the well. And that caused incredible trauma in my home. Um, and that caused then domestic violence in my home between my mother and my father and my brother and my father. And I actually write about this in a book on teacher evaluation because it, it formed who I am. Um, Tupac Shakur talks about the rose in the concrete. Mm-hmm. I am the rose that grew from concrete, but the concrete is a part of me and it's not something I want to leave behind. It made me who I am. And so that bringing that into the Denver Public Schools was extremely difficult because no one talked about it. My parents didn't talk to it about it, and my teachers didn't talk about it, and I didn't understand what death meant until I was mm-hmm. about 10 years old. Now, I want to share my experience with you in the Denver Public Schools because it was such a formative experience that led me into being a teacher and led me into being a teacher educator. Um, I went to kindergarten with all my treasures and they were in my mochila, my Mm. backpack, and they were beautiful treasures. They were my Spanish language and my Mexican culture and my parents and my siblings and all of my extended family. And Mr. Lopez thought my treasures were beautiful in my bilingual kindergarten classroom. And he wanted me to bring those treasures into the classroom. And he thought I was so smart that I could learn in two languages. Mm. However, I was mainstreamed in the first grade and to a sink or swim opportunity, right? And it wasn't even an opportunity. It was enforced. Ms. Kowalski's classroom, she gave me the message that my mochila, my backpack, and my beautiful treasures were not welcome in her classroom, and she never had to say a word. She taught me this through her curriculum, her instruction, what was on the walls of her classroom. And so I got the message pretty clearly that there was something wrong with that old mochila and I needed the new mochila that would give me the English language, that would give me the U.S. culture and U.S. ways of knowing. So I didn't want that old mochila. Those treasures, they weren't shiny anymore. Um, I wanted those new treasures. So I worked really, really hard in the third grade to get into the top reading group, the Red Robins, because I figured out in third grade that the way to become smart and to become worthy was to become white and that the color of my skin would change. If I got into the highest literacy group because the few white students in my class were in the top literacy group and they were favored by my teacher. So I worked really, really hard and I got into that top reading group and my teacher called my name and I got this little ribbon and I thought the color of my skin would change right there on the spot. And then I went home and felt completely demoralized that I would have to live in my dark skin forever. And that was my experience in the Denver public schools. It was about losing what I came with. And it was about feeling shame about what I brought with me and those treasures. And I finally hit this sense of anger in high school when I had a Spanish teacher who saw value in my treasures and told me to get them back, not to let them go. And so that was at the point at which I started to learn about my own culture and my own language, right? It was these five teachers in the Denver Public Schools, my entire experience, who held high expectations for me. The others had the pobrecito syndrome. Mm -hmm. Let me lower the bar so you can step over it. You poor little one, Mm -hmm. You're, you're lucky to make it out of high school. And so having that experience then coming into college was so hard. My dad, when I told him I wanted to go to college, he said, loca <laughs> He says, are you crazy, daughter? He grew up in poverty. And so to him, his idea of success was getting a job and making money. So I had to navigate the higher education system without knowing not one person in my entire family, extended family or community who had gone to college. And I waited for those professors to give me back my treasures but they wielded the Western cannon, like a weapon that would keep America great. They weren't going to give me back those treasures. And so I had to regain and learn about my own culture and my history and my ways of knowing and regain those. And that's what led me into teaching. I became a teacher in DPS and then Jefferson County, a history teacher, because I wanted to challenge um, the, the master narrative around our accomplishments and around our history and contributions. and then. I got my doctorate because I saw a Latina who had a doctorate. And I thought, hey, if she can do that, I can do that. And so that brought me into the University of Denver. I've been here 18 years now. One of five full professors on the entire University of Denver campus. Yes. Awesome. And first in my college, woman of color to get tenure and full professor as well. And mind you, we've been around since the late 1800s. First and
0: foremost, just on a personal note, I watched a couple of your lectures they you gave about teacher evaluation and the most recent iRise event and i could just listen to you talk all day i just love the way that you say stuff and you say it in such a way where it makes sense but you say it so beautifully it's like that's what i was feeling but i never had the words to be able to put it oh. that eloquently
1: so for sharing that it's one of my treasures it's um storytelling that came from my grandpa and my dad and so I think that's part of it is just that the ability to weave a story in a way that really reflects your own emotion and experience and connects to others as well. I want to kind of lean into the storytelling. side. said, what... What does storytelling bring for your personal life? I think storytelling is very much cultural. It's very much embedded in the Mexican culture. It's it's part of many Latinx and indigenous and I would say African cultures as well. And so it really makes me feel connected to my family and to my roots and to my heritage and to my ancestors. So I see that in my youngest son as well, he's Cisco, and he's the storyteller of our family as well. And so it seems like every generation has their Storyteller, and I think that's part of the the power of connecting to your ancestors and um, being able to to weave stories in a way that really connects with people. So it feels to me like an ancestral connection. But I also recently have talked to people about what it feels like to lose my stories and my ability to tell those stories. Because to be successful at the University of Denver to become a full professor. To navigate promotion and tenure, I've had to become very linear. So teaching, that's valued in teaching. It's valued in grant writing. It's valued in academic writing. And so this sense of having to become linear to be successful, which is also a sense of using white ways of knowing, right, makes me feel sometimes like am I losing my stories? Am I losing that ability Um, But I think where I am at this point in life is that I'm able to be truly bicultural. I'm able to um, see the world in linear ways and translate it in linear ways for people, but to maintain my stories. and, And you'll see that in my writing. You'll see in my writing how... I. I do have linear forms of writing because I need to to get published in peer-reviewed journal articles, but I'll weave in my stories as well. So I really try to bring that, that bicultural lens where I'm able to do both and show my knowledge in both of my cultures, my U.S. culture, and my Mexican culture, but it's not easy because sometimes they're in opposition to each other. So. It's definitely been a challenge, I would say, to, to incorporate both those ways of knowing simultaneously.
0: I was reading over um, some of your works this weekend and what you had just kind of said about feeling like you're losing your stories because you have to, in some ways, assimilate to this white academic ways of, of writing, ways of thinking, ways of expression. And I think so much of your story is about, especially with Mr. Lopez and Ms. Kowalski, is kind of represented as Mr. Lopez being the person who allowed you to bring your full self into the space and you celebrated that. And then Ms. Kowalski, who demonized you for it, didn't even verbally criticize, but it was just reinforced through, you would say, kind of the art on her walls, the displays on her walls. And one of the things when I was reading a couple of your articles that kept coming up was this idea that when we don't allow students to bring the full, the full of who they are, all of their identities, we do, I believe it was called
1: subtractive schooling. Mm-hmm by Angela Valenzuela, subtractive schooling, where um, a student's resources or treasures are subtracted. right, And that's in, com- in contrast to additive schooling, where a student brings their treasures and their mochila to school and the teacher adds to those treasures or the school leader adds to those treasures. And so it's very much in contrast to each other. I think one of the most powerful things I want people to take away from that story of the backpack, right, the mochila, is that neither teacher had to be explicit about my treasures being valued or included. They did it through their curriculum, instruction, assessment through what was on their walls and the books they had in their classrooms, their posters. And they also did it by what they omitted, what they never said. Right, And so when Mr. Lopez's classrooms, I felt every message that he sent my way was that I had value, that my treasures had value, that I could build on those treasures and add. There's that additive approach, right? And that I was so, so smart, so bright that I could learn in two languages and everything he communicated to me in various ways and forms. And with Ms. Kowalski, she never told me I was less than or inferior, she never um, told me that I couldn't bring my treasures into the classroom. She didn't have to. I knew it by what we learned, how we learned it, how she taught, what her classroom looked like. And so that's the power of everything a teacher does, right? Everything an educator does is not just about what you say, it's about what you do, what you privilege, the curriculum you use, the curriculum you don't use, That the idea of the hidden curriculum. It's what you can't see, that you're communicating to me. By never teaching me about people who look like me or having books of people who look like me, she communicated to me, Miss Kowalski, that I didn't have value, that people who look like me had no value, that people who look like me had never accomplished anything in life, and that I should value and prize whiteness, and that should be my goal. And that's exactly the goal I embarked on, right, until... I got to the third grade where I thought I could become white by getting into the top reading group, and when they called my name to join those those Blue Robins, it was something that I thought would transform the color of my skin, and it didn't, and so really became disheartened that I would have to live in this dark skin, right, and what that meant to me. So really embarked on on a journey that was self destructive in a sense to distance myself from my native language, from my culture, from my parents because I felt ashamed of them. I felt ashamed of my native language, of being Mexican, and and I craved and wanted whiteness because Miss Kowalski told me it would make me worthy without ever saying a word. I kind of want to dive into that a bit more and i think
0: what you're really highlighting in my own personal experience is that teachers really have a huge impact not only the way that students learn but in the ways that they view themselves mm-hmm. and so one of from your article interrogating teacher evaluation unveiling whiteness as a normative center and moving the margins you state and this is quote uh, teacher evaluation is yet another mechanism to fortify whiteness and marginalize communities of color So, I wanted to learn a bit more from you about why teacher evaluation is so important and then how new types of pedagogy and theories are beginning to be created to decenter whiteness.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely think teacher evaluation is key to that because it creates a roadmap for teachers and it also creates an accountability mechanism so that. Um, educators aren't doing it out of the goodness of their heart. It is expected and it is um, put forward as best practice. Equitable and excellent teaching is best practice for all children. And so um, at the University of Denver, we developed a teacher valuation framework called the Framework for Equitable and Excellent Teaching. And I actually wrote a book about this where I incorporate uh, my stories that like the one you just heard, but also the construct of culturally responsive teacher evaluation. And in this book, I also challenge the centrality of whiteness in teacher evaluation tools. So um, many teacher evaluation tools that are used nationally or even used in districts really emphasize that it's, they're neutral, right? And that they are um, for all children. And yet they're not neutral because they don't explicitly include uh, the resources or the treasures of children of color and other marginalized communities. And so uh, we are actually invisible in these tools. And that's why we developed this tool at the University of Denver, because we couldn't find a teacher evaluation tool that centered our children, our Black, Brown, and Indigenous children in particular, but children who are at the margins, culturally and linguistically diverse in particular. So it took us 10 years to create this tool, pilot it and test the psychometric properties. And um, we are now developing an updated version that has an even stronger focus on racial and social justice. It will always be a tool in progress because of what we learn and how we grow. So it will never be a stagnant tool. Uh, but we know that this tool makes a difference for our teachers and it makes a difference for children and it makes a difference in terms of making sure that children are valued and their treasures are valued. And the tool is for all children. It's not just for BIPOC children as well. And so um, we really found that we had to develop our own because it, it just didn't exist. It didn't exist. And what did exist was fortifying whiteness and white supremacy.
0: I didn't know that FEAT was initially
1: started at the University of Denver. That's right. Incredibly intense. It's research-based, standards-based. It's also based on best practice, especially practices for culturally, linguistically diverse youth. And I think also importantly is it's got my lived experiences in there because they were my eyes that developed this tool, right, and my lived experiences. and so. I've captured this idea of the treasures and the the full humanity. And so this idea of the humanizing pedagogy is in there where all of us is in this tool and it's explicit. I think that's also what's really important is you can't, promote equity and advance equity unless you're explicit and unapologetic about it it can't be about throwing in the word diversity or equity randomly um, it really has to be the intentionality behind it and the explicit um, explicit nature behind it too and so that that I think is what's powerful about our tool is that we are unapologetic about centering. Um, children who are culturally Mm and linguistically diverse and their families and we make the case that it's it's for all children because everyone has culture and everyone has language and everyone deserves to be valued and for their full humanity to be incorporated into education and teacher evaluation. So jumping right off of that can you explain a bit more about what humanizing pedagogy looks like? Sure. Humanizing pedagogy was a concept that was developed by Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator. Um, And his idea of a humanizing pedagogy was really centered around the development of consciousness, both for teachers and students, so that it would be a mutually humanizing endeavor. And so um, he really focused on dialogue as, as the development of consciousness and mutual humanization and what I did in a 2013 article was expand on that and develop five tenets of a humanizing pedagogy as well as 10 practices. Um, and my newest article that I'm working on now is, is about four pillars of a humanizing pedagogy. And so I'm really reconceptualizing that. And the reason I'm re- reconceptualizing that is um, is is. One, I still continue to focus on the power of consciousness, right? Um, So I'm embedding culturally responsive pedagogy within that around the importance of learning the culture of power, but also drawing from the power of our culture. And then there's something that i've always struggled to articulate um, when people ask me why and how i've been successful what made a difference sometimes it wasn't clear to me how to answer that but i'm the only person in my family to go to college and to complete college and i have said there are seven of us all together so people ask me what was different than you right my father had a third grade education has a third grade education my mother a sixth grade education and something very central is that I had to believe in myself. And so I couldn't wait for others to believe in me. And that's something I want to add to this construct of a humanizing pedagogy, that, that self-empowerment and that belief in oneself. And so as, I'm, as I am, again, revisiting a humanizing pedagogy, I'm really trying to capture that sense of self and the importance of, of being able to move your own Um, desires, goals, and dreams forward and not depending on others to to be able to see that and to be able to see that you have the power to do that. So I think my answer to what is a humanizing pedagogy as it's ever evolving, it's not a stagnant concept. It was created originally by Paulo Freire, but there are a number of scholars that are now taking a humanizing pedagogy into different arenas and content areas like online learning, digital learning, math, literacy. And so it's a concept that can really go across many, and including higher education. So I think many of us as scholars are reinventing what a humanizing pedagogy looks like today and what it looks like across contexts.
0: Reflecting on your own um, school background, how would your experiences through through high school, through college, have been different, had a humanizing pedagogy been in place?
1: That's a really great question. I recently, uh, when I did the talk with the DPS superintendent, Dr. Marrero, um, I've also heard him talk in, in multiple venues about his own story. And his own experience with dehumanization like I experienced. And so uh, for me, the dehumanization caused me to become an educator just like it did for him. And that was because I did not want children to experience the same thing that I did. And I didn't want my children to experience the same thing that I did either. And so um, I wanted this for my children and other people's children. If I had experienced a humanizing education, I think wow, the power that would be in my hands right now. And I think that's often what people fear. I'll give you a concrete example. There are students at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Early College who are phenomenal, who are experiencing a truly humanizing education, and they are coming into their power and are becoming very active in social justice and racial justice. And I always see what they're like and think, wow, had I had that, right, had I had that education, I could have found my voice much sooner than my doctoral degree, much sooner than being a professor at the University of Denver. And so I believe a humanizing education or a humanizing pedagogy is power. It is power in our hands and it helps us not only to move ourselves forward, but our families and our communities as well. And that's what's most impactful.
0: I wanted to also ask you, jumping off of talking about humanizing pedagogy and um, to get your opinion about the criticism that is currently facing schools that are looking to implement critical race theory within their curriculum.
1: Yeah, I think I would like to address the, the, is, the issues that are emerging around critical race theory. Many of us have done this work for a, a great deal amount of time. I didn't, and for me, it's a lens of looking at the world. And that lens is really about um, challenging di- dominant ideologies, but it's also about putting our experiences at the center of that. And that our experiences have value and that our experiences... Um, can really help shape not only the conversation, but the direction of the nation as well. And so uh, I think that is important to to really link to around. We can do some really powerful work uh, when we're centering our voices as well and not being afraid to center our voices or to challenge those dominant ideologies. I do that through teacher evaluation. Right, through teacher evaluation, I challenge those dominant ideologies of whiteness at the center, and I also bring in the experiential knowledge of our communities to say we deserve to be at the center and we we have value. and that doesn't mean anyone needs to move out of the center. That means there's plenty of room in the center and And what does that mean, and how does that transform the margins? And so that's it's complex too. Um, In my book on teacher evaluation, I also write about how how important it is to re-envision constructs and not to always keep them within the same box. And so I even challenge our own tool around the tool we've created for teacher evaluation and talk about other constructs that we need to develop like community-based teacher evaluation. To where the community decides what is equitable and excellent teaching and the framework is developed around what the community values. So we need to continue to push and we need to continue um, to exercise our voice and use our voice. Uh, Sometimes our voice represents the voice of many others and that can be a very challenging thing and it can be a weight as well, Uh, but I think it's incredibly important to continue to do this work. And I really value my colleagues at the University of Denver who are doing this. We're doing this across many different arenas um, and iRise is a huge supporter of this work. I think uh, that's something that I greatly appreciate is the the work and the resources that iRise have brought to faculty and students at the University of Denver.
0: We're having a lot of discussions now about critical race theory entering into schools and a lot of criticism there. And I loved how you just put it about there's plenty of room in the center, because I think a lot of people think that that means that we're essentially going to do to white students what we've (laughs) experienced. Um, And so I think what you're saying just really just shows that's not, we're trying to make this a community we're trying to address everyone's needs would that be a good way of framing that
1: yeah i mean some people i would say critical race theorists might criticize that and say the center is white so by bringing us into the center you're bringing us into whiteness Um, and and that the margins are really the space where we can thrive and so i think about it not as an either or i think about it as um I do believe there's plenty of place in the center and I do believe in listening to different perspectives and trying to understand each other's perspectives, but not from a position of fear or a position of loss. I think that's where the damage happens, where um, people become afraid or people become threatened and and then the conversation is over and the movement is over. So I really uh, believe that there is space for us all and not everyone believes that I'm fully aware of it, but I also have the privilege of working with pre-service teachers who are very idealistic and I love that about them and I hope they never lose it and I hope I never lose my idealism around what's possible too. Because I think that's power. I think theres it's so easy to
0: sometimes feel like things can't change or like you're not being wise because you're idealistic or realistic because you're idealistic and I that's something I'm trying to tap into just for myself too is just holding on to that idealism holding on to believing that things can be not only better but better than what I can expect so to kind of tie our conversation from the very beginning back now what is currently in your mochila what are your treasures now
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I'm a full professor now. I'm only one of four Latina full professors on the entire University of Denver campus. And nationwide, less than 1% of full professors are Latina. So um, part of the treasures in my mochila right now is that power of a full professor to where I get to use my knowledge and my skills um, to help my community. And that's something that's very powerful in the sense of I get to make a real difference on a large scale. Uh, For example, I am leading the DPS superintendent's transition team. There are three leads in his group, and I get to be part of the strategic planning process of the whole district moving forward, right? So that's exciting to me because I'm a graduate of the Denver Public Schools, so to be able to do this work is really phenomenal, to have an impact, and there are there are other ways that I'm working with community, whether that's teacher evaluation, doing research on what community values, so all of these treasures in my mochila right now, all of the skills that I've learned to this point have really helped me to bring those treasures out of my mochila to serve my community and and the communities that I love, those who are at the margins as well. And I think uh, I'm trying to teach my children the value of that, of using all of their many treasures and resources and privileges they have to help others who, who really need that support. And I think that's what I'm most proud of right now about what's in my mochila, as well as my children are my treasures and, um, as they're transitioning to college, it's something that I'm trying to treasure every moment that I have with them. As two boys in high school now, Diego and Cisco, and Sophia is in college already, and she stayed pretty close. So I think just enjoying that time with them and and valuing them as my treasures, but also using all the treasures I have to to connect and help my community as so, well. Thank
0: you for I was wondering, and just kind of to wrap us up and then also to kind of bring us back to the start of this episode, if you would be able to read your poem,
1: testimony. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm going to contextualize first why I wrote this, but I was actually asked by the editor of the Bilingual Research Journal to write Um, something whether really it was really about writing an article to an author who of children's books who was very well known in Texas and who wrote about children's books and it was from the point of a character named Tere and this little girl was very much marginalized and dehumanized in school so instead of writing an academic journal article I decided to write a poem and um, that was my way of bringing in my storytelling and my treasures and challenging these linear ways of knowing and writing that are in academic journal articles. So this is actually the only poem I've ever published. So um, it starts with no books, no resources, no support, no language, no worth. Mama was yanked out in the sixth grade, papa in the third No history, no accomplishments, no future, no voice. The pobrecitos, not meant to graduate from high school, much less earn a PhD. The master narrative, can't do, don't have, limited, at risk, impoverished, disadvantaged, illiterate. Our counter narrative, Boundary spanners, bilingual, bicultural, biliterate, filled with stories, proverbs, lullabies, Bible verses, cuentos, corridos, canciones, comedias, novelas, poetry in motion. The source of literacy in my home, my grandfather telling cuentos del diablo, ghosts, fireballs, and la llorona. My grandmother singing, Ru ru, camaleón, su mamá la rata, su papá ratón wordplay, rhyme, alliteration, metaphors, analogies, similes, personification. I am Tere, we are Tere, we are fenced in the margins, our literary genius hidden, invisible, silenced, erased. So this poem really captures those perspectives we talked about, the views from Mr. Lopez and also from Ms. Kowalski. I'm Mr. Lopez could see all of those treasures are counter-narrative, that we have value, that we have a literary genius in our culture, in our homes, with our grandparents, with our parents. Whereas Miss Kowalski, all she saw was that pobrecita, that poor little one. She'll be lucky to graduate from high school. She needs me to give her everything from the U.S. culture. And her treasures, they, they will get in her way. They will be a hindrance for her success. So she should leave those behind. Now, mind you, neither of them ever communicated this to me, but as a kindergartner, I knew I knew what they valued and I knew what they thought would, would make me successful. And so for me, this poem really captures my life, especially in K-12, but even in college as well, and even today, around can people see my treasures? Can do what do I have to leave behind as a professor to be successful in the academy? What am I not willing to lose? And what do I wanna make sure that our communities have moving forward this ability to maintain and grow with their treasures?
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. To stay up to date on Rage episode release information and opportunities, be sure to follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. To support The Rage Podcast, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you are listening to us on. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRIS. To learn more about the work that we do, please visit our website, irise.du.edu. Thank you for listening to this episode and we will catch you next time.